Lovely to see you all here this morning. Lovely to be rid of that mask as well. I have one of those blessings that you don't have. When you were speaking, you need to take the mask off. I hope you've all had a good week and it's a blessing to be sharing God's word with you again. And hopefully they'll lead to restrictions even more in the coming days and weeks. So uh, in the meantime, uh, let's, uh, let's enjoy the word of God. And today we have a new series that's starting and I'm pretty excited about it. Um, it's the book of Daniel we're going to be working through. One of the provisions we did last week and said uh, he asked me if we could do something like Revelation, I think, last week. And um, I've done Revelation a few years back, actually a while back now, um, which is probably, to go through it probably, it's probably more than a year's worth of, uh, of sermons. Um, and I was thinking about, because I, I want to try to share sermons that change our lives from the point of view of teaching us how to live. Uh, and so as I prayed about it and thought about it, the um, uh, Lord brought Daniel to mind. Daniel is a wonderful uh, book, uh, not only giving a sweeping uh, and panoramic views of uh, the future, uh, it links beautifully with uh, Revelation as well. But it also shows us or gives us wonderful examples on how to live by faith uh, in this world, especially in an unbelieving world. Uh, so I pray that uh, this book will be a blessing to you, and uh, it's already a blessing to me as I'm studying it and, uh, and working my way through it. Let's, let's, um, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's commit this time to the Lord, and we'll, uh, we'll see what he has for us today. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your loving kindness and your grace. We thank you for the sweet salvation that we enjoy because of the love and the work of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who went to that cross at Calvary, gave himself that we might be saved. We thank you, Father, that you have now elevated us to sit in heavenly places with you, that you have called us your children, and we are now your ambassadors to this world. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we work our way through this book, that you would be revealing yourself uh, through it. Lord, that you would uh, be challenging us to live, to glorify you in our lives each and every day, and also to, to thank you and to look and to understand that we have much to look forward to. So we thank you that um, that you are not only with us today, but that the future is in your hands as well. And we pray for your blessing upon us today as we seek to learn more through your word. Bless us now through your spirit, and may the name of our Savior be lifted up in this place today. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we're starting this new um, uh, series. I want to share some of the, the benefits that I think that we'll receive through this particular book. And today will uh, serve as a, an introduction and a foundation to this series, which will probably take us about three uh, months or more. And I hope it will be a blessing to you. I really do um, this coming uh, uh, months because um, Daniel um, is a wonderful example of a man of faith. Um, Daniel was a, a prophet, uh, and you'll, you'll know that his, uh, his, his book is in the actual Old Testament, who was living in exile for most of his life. Um, but even though he was a, a Jewish prophet, he was elevated to positions of authority. And he um, worked and lived under some of the greatest and most powerful rulers and regimes in this, this world has ever known. And despite uh, living in an unbelieving world uh, and working for ungodly men, uh, Daniel maintained his integrity and his faith throughout the whole his whole life, and he becomes a wonderful example to us of uh, living by faith in a fallen world. And because of his faithfulness, um, Daniel was given a sweeping and panoramic view of the future by God. Basically, 
um, from the Babylonian um, uh, uh, empire that he was under when he was exiled, God told him and showed him the future world empires that would come after. It's an extraordinary book when you think about it. Historically, it's so accurate that theologians and, and, uh, and uh, critical uh, uh, scholars have struggled with it. Because how can a man know that the Babylonian Empire would be taken over by the Persians? And then after the Persians, the Greeks would come. And after the Greeks, the Romans would come. How did he, how did he even know that? Well, there's only one answer to that. Um, and that's God gave him that information. And so as we work our way through this, not only does, does he speak about the, the great empires that would come after, but he speaks of a final a kingdom that will come. And so he brings us right to the end of the world where Jesus returns in glory and power and it speaks of Jesus coming and ruling the actual world. So he was given, because of his faithfulness, an extraordinary vision of the future. And it is the most prophetic book in the Old Testament. Okay, actually, well, apart from Revelation, it is the most prophetic book. I only second to that. What's interesting about the book of Daniel as well is that if, if you look at Daniel, most of the prophecies don't have to do with the Jewish people. They have to do with the Gentile nations. What's different about uh, Daniel to Revelation is that Revelation really focuses on the Jewish people. Okay, You might think, well, Revelation's got to do with the end of the world. And the majority of Revelation really has to do with the Jewish people again. So um, from that perspective, if you understand the perspective from which they're speaking, uh, it'll better help you understand what the message is in these actual books. Um, the book of Daniel provides also special keys to understanding Revelation. So if you understand some significant points in, Re in uh, Daniel, you will better understand what Re Re Revelation is actually coming from because there are a number of parallel passages in those books. So if you know one, the other one gives you added information which builds on the same thing. So together, Daniel and Revelation form a really beautiful um, picture or mosaic of what the future will be, but also in terms of what our lives should be in this world. Um, so it's a, a fantastic book, and I pray that uh, you'll be blessed through it. But I would encourage you also in the coming months to study it for yourselves. Okay? Don't get too far ahead of me unless you're going the actual. <laughs> but no, do study it because there are there are huge blessings to studying this particular book. Um, it's in the book of Daniel where we first hear the names Gabriel and Michael. So Gabriel is the, is the book where we're introduced to the names or the identities of angelic beings that have to do and, and what their role is in humanity uh, in the course of history. We find out Gabriel later on actually is involved again. Remember when Jesus was about to be born, it was Gabriel who actually came and, and shared that message with Mary and Joseph. Um, but Michael, we understand also, is uh, the archangel how he is involved in, in watching over the people of Israel specifically and how he is an angel of war. Um, the world we live in is um, growing and developing at a frenetic pace. Um, knowledge is increasing at an exponential rate at the moment. Okay, so the last 50 years, because of uh, the advent of uh, the internet, 
and computers and the ease of international travel. Um, knowledge is increasing faster today than any other time in human history. In fact, the amount of, of knowledge that the world is gaining and has access to now is, if you look at it, if, if you look at it over the last thousands and thousands of years, the, the increase of knowledge was essentially like that, a very, very slow and gradual with certain spikes, okay, during certain times in the world's history, like, you know, during the Renaissance and those sorts of things. Um, if you were to look at the growth of knowledge in our world today, it's gone like that, okay? And that's because um, of the fast and easy flow of information between peoples and also the, the connectedness we have now between nations of the world and the ability to be able to travel so easily between nations. Actually, most of us who are here um, are either uh, the children who have come or people that have come from overseas or children or are children of migrants who have come from overseas, whether by whether by ship or whether by plane, um, the the travel that we that we uh, enjoy uh, has never been this way. Okay, why am I sharing that with you? Because at the moment we have a world that's changing so quickly in terms of its knowledge and its ability to grow that people who call themselves ethicists, okay, people who try to get a handle on uh, what's right or what's wrong or what the limits of what you should be able to do are struggling and, and government bodies, okay, governments are struggling to uh, to um, advance legislation to keep up with technology. The things are changing so fast, they can't even keep up with it. They can't create laws fast enough to actually try to manage or control what's going on in this world. Um, and on top of that, if you were to compare our lives to the lives of previous generations, we are living a very fast-paced life. And I shared with this, this with you uh, probably last week or the week before, that there's a lot of people, Christians especially, um, who would love to have a more simple life, just live a little bit more simply, with a little bit less uh, pace, um, and just be a bit more normal, because it doesn't feel normal, the lives that we live at the moment. And it's not, it's never been this way before. Um, and this is why when, when we look at the, the closing of international borders and things like that because of the, the, the virus, people get frustrated because they can't travel because they've been used to traveling. And so we've relied even more and more on technology to keep us connected on things like Zoom and YouTube and, and those sorts of things, which, I mean, they, they are blessings in themselves, but they are a curse at the same time when you look at them. Um, movement. That's a, I think it's a good word, movement, um, both physically and um, uh, in, from a point of view of knowledge or intellectually exemplifies our society today. It's moving and it's moving very, very fast. But we, we move physically, a very, we move more today than we ever have before. Um, considering the type of locomotion that we have, we move more today than any other time in history and we, we we are growing in knowledge faster than any other time in history, which is why da Daniel, I believe, um, is a perfect book for us today. You might ask why. Well, turn with me to Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 for a moment, because God told him at the end of the end of the book of Daniel to do something, and that these conditions were going to be prevalent during these last these last days. 
So Daniel 12, 4 tells us, but thou, O Daniel, so he's finished writing this book, essentially, and God says to Daniel, uh, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. And look at what he, how he finishes it. This is God saying, he says, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Well, that's exactly true today. There is a lot of running to and fro. If, if you were to describe our society, you couldn't, run, you couldn't describe it better than running to and fro and knowledge increasing. Okay? So we've seen as if these words have found their true meaning in our culture today. Because if you go back, previous culture, if you go back even 100 years, you wouldn't be thinking this. You know, what, what does it mean, running to and fro? But running to and fro, we've got people crossing the globe all over the place. Um, so I think these words ring true in our, in our time. There are indeed many that run to and fro. Knowledge is increasing dramatically. So we've seen that now is a good time for us to understand what the Lord has revealed to us in this little book. So I, that's from the perspective of why I'm actually coming and working through this book with you. Okay. So let me just give you a bit of a background now to Daniel. Daniel was a contemporary or lived around the same time as Jeremiah, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, it depends on how you pronounce it, and Ezekiel. Okay, so those those prophets lived at the same time and were were, cross, were crossing each other's paths um, during uh, in those days. Okay, Ezekiel, um, who was carried off at a later stage to Babylon as well, mentions Daniel in his book, and he mentions Daniel as a righteous man and even compares him to Noah and Job. That's how highly Ezekiel. Uh, considered Daniel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 14 because the, uh, the Lord actually mentions to Ezekiel um, a particular uh, judgment that's coming. And Ezekiel records these words. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. And it's quite rare for a prophet to be mentioning another prophet. Okay, It's very rare. For one prophet to say, oh, I, this particular person or, um, uh, or anything about them. But he's mentioned uh, by Ezekiel uh, more than once. So in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 12, this is because the Lord spoke to Ezekiel and it was the Lord who really mentioned him. It says in Ezekiel 14, 12, the word of the Lord came again to me, that's Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out my hand upon it and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. So God was saying, you know, if, if, a, if a land of my people grievously sin, and that's not some light sins, but talking some serious stuff, God says, I'm going to send a famine upon it, and you know what? Even if those men were in it, they would sa only save themselves by their righteousness. So it's only going to be those most righteous that will be saved. And Daniel is considered a righteous man by God. Look who he compares him to. He's got him, he's got him right between Noah and Job. Not too bad if you're going to be listed in a, in a group. Wouldn't mind being this between those two uh, gentlemen there. Um, Ezekiel refers also to man uh, to Daniel as a very wise man. 
And when a lamentation concerning the prince of Ty is taken up, God himself, again, mentions Daniel as a very wise man. So turn to 28, Ezekiel 28 with me, verse 2. Ezekiel 28, verse 2. And Ezekiel 28 is, a, is a, quite an interesting chapter because it, there's two parts essentially to it. In the first part, he's taking up a lamentation against the prince of Tyre, and in the second part, he's taking up a lamentation against the king of Tyre. Well, if you look at the description about the king of Tyre, um, it sounds very much like someone that we know about. Uh, sounds very much like the devil. Okay? So... You can read that one in your own time. But he says there in Ezekiel 28 two, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, and sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not God, um, thou, uh, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hid from thee. So Daniel is considered by God himself to be a very, very wise man. So when he's, he's pronouncing this judgment upon the king of, or the prince of Tyre, he's essentially saying, well, you're even smarter than Daniel, which means the prince of Tyre was well aware of who Daniel actually was and that he was already regarded as a wise person. And for sure he was a wise person. He was the advisor to the most powerful man on the planet at that stage, King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Daniel was written um, essentially to, to encourage the fellow exiles that were with him in Babylon. That despite what they were experiencing, God was ultimately in control. It may not have looked as if he was in control. I mean, imagine being brought away from your country to some, some other foreign land. It might look as if God's only in control, but Daniel makes it very clear that God was in control. Not only was he in control, but he was also Lord over all of these worlds, kingdoms, and kings. Regardless of whatever they thought of themselves, ultimately he was the one who had authority over them. Regardless of what they believed, regardless of how evil they were, God was sovereign over them and would glorify himself through them. Daniel also makes it clear that God, that with the God that we believe in, sits outside of time. He is not locked into time as we are. He sits outside of it and he can see the end from the beginning. As easily as, as I read this paper to you today. God knows everything. So he knew the future that would come. And in knowing the future, so well, because God was able to share the future of what this world would, um, would experience, it shows us that he, there's nothing outside of his knowledge. Nothing that takes him by surprise. He knows everything. Everything that's going to happen to you and me tomorrow, God already knew it. But there's nothing that catches him unaware. Daniel teaches that God is for those who put their trust in him. Okay, he is on the side of those who trust him. Despite their circumstances, he always remains faithful. This is most clearly enunciated by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Actually, one of the only 
um, uh, words recorded by a non-Jew, okay, in the Bible, by someone who is not a believer in God, is recorded of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. So Nebuchadnezzar makes this statement, it's recorded in Daniel. Turn, actually, turn with me there, because in these words, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges at one particular time in his life the supremacy of the God of the Bible, okay? The supremacy of this one and only God who we have put our trust and faith in. So turn to Daniel 4.34 with me, chapter 4, verse 34. Um, So Daniel 4.34, this is after Nebuchadnezzar himself had been judged by God and he realized that what he had been through was because this God had authority over him and could do to him whatever he wanted as well. So Daniel 4.34 says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven and mine understanding returned unto me and I blessed the Most High. That's God. And I praised and honour him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honour and brightness returned unto me. And my counsellors and my Lord sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. So he was speaking about himself. Because he had lifted him up himself up against this God at the at the um, uh, at the warnings of Daniel, God essentially allowed him for a number of years to live like an animal. He lost his mind. Okay. And so at the end of that, God took that punishment uh, away from him and he was able to come back to his senses and he realized, you know what? Daniel was right. This God is the God who is above all things, and there is nothing that anyone can do to say, say to this God um, and say, "What are you doing? You don't have the right to do that." No, he has the right to do that. He has the right. Actually, I shared this with you um, probably a couple of weeks ago. Now, how um, one extraordinary time in my life, and I, I found the Lord when I was at university in second year. And I was sitting in front of one of my physics professors and I was starting to try to share the gospel with him. Huh? And he, 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 shared, he shared this particular uh, thing with me. He said he respects God more. He would respect a God more who created the universe and then just let it go to actually live its own life. And he would just stand back and just watch. Um, and I thought that was quite strange to think about like that because for me, I now had a personal relationship with God. So it was something immensely valuable to me. So, so why would he say he would rather a God that you can't have a relationship with? A God that was so distant and so, and so unknowable that you couldn't get to know him. Surely if there's a God who is 
knowledgeable and loving and caring and has all these wonderful attributes. I want to know that God. But the other, from the other perspective, people love to make their own gods. You see, in his mind, in his mind, from his intellectual point of view, uh, a God who he respects would just let the universe go on of its own course. But I thought to myself, well, you know what? It's easy to make up your own God. But you've got to deal with people, don't you, every day. I mean, I have to look at myself in the mirror every day, don't I? The person who's looking back at me is a person I have to deal with, isn't it? You know what I mean? I mean, I may think that I might, you know, I could be something else or, you know what I mean, I could look differently or speak differently or act differently, but I've got to deal with who I am. And then I have to deal with who you are. And you have to deal with who I am. You know, and, and, and I was standing in front of this professor and at the end of the day, he has to deal with who I am as a person, doesn't he? He's going to take me through who I am. He might not like me. He may not, he may not agree with me. But day, you know what? This is me. And if it's true for me, how much more true is, is that for God? If there is a God who created all of the universe, who created everything in it, even the reality that we live in, right? The, this bubble that we live in called reality that we see in front of us and we hear and we, and we decide this is the truth. You know what? If that's the God who created reality, then he is more real than the reality. And whatever he is, however he is, whatever character he is, whatever attributes he has, I have to deal with it, don't I? It's pointless for me to start saying, I would rather have a God like this. Because at the end of the day, he's not going to change for me. I'm going to have to learn to change for him. And Nebuchadnezzar got to that point. Nebuchadnezzar may have wanted for this God that who, who Daniel served to be different, not to be in control of everything, not to be the judge over all. You know what I mean? So he thought to himself, you know, I could I can live the way I want. I can make the decisions that I want without being influenced by this character that I can't see. Instead, he found out the hard way. You're going to have to learn to live with it. The beautiful thing about it, from, from where I see it, now that I've come to know him personally, there's no better person that you want to be. You know, the God that he was revealed himself in the Bible could have been anything. You think about that for a moment. Did he have to be all loving? Did he have to show much forgiveness and grace and mercy? Does he have to really be like that? No. He could have been anything. And then he could have simply said, this is me. You either take me or you're going to suffer the consequences. Take me as I am and suffer the consequences. But the God who we, who we uh, enjoy in terms of this relationship that we have is beautiful. He is a, a, a wonderful God to know. And so Nebuchadnezzar, um, finally makes that that real uh, realizes that truth for himself. So it's amazing that Nebuchadnezzar's words have been recorded in the Bible, but it's a testimony of not only how important Nebuchadnezzar or what influence he was in the world at that stage, but also the fact that he interacted with the God of the universe. He had this, this interaction, he had this meeting. It was Nebuchadnezzar that besieged Judah 
Okay, when, when the Bible speaks about here, we're going to be looking at it, he besieged it. You know what, what happens when you besiege a, a city? Well, that the, the city of Jerusalem was a walled city. In fact, one of the one of the things we, we know is that if if you um had a wall around you, okay, you were considered a city. Without a wall, you didn't you weren't a city, you were a town, essentially. Okay. But Jerusalem was the capital of Israel or Judah, essentially, because they split up at that stage. And he besieged it. In other words, he surrounded it to the point where they couldn't get out or in. Okay. And when you besiege a city, you either try to break in or you you starve them out. Because they can't get out or in. They're not getting food or, or uh, from their farms or anywhere else. So there are two two different types of mechanisms you can use. But the Bible tells us he besieged the city. Um, so it tells us here in Daniel 1.1, 1, 1, he's mentioned the very first verse of Daniel. And now we're going to look at what happened. So Daniel 1, 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar, you could look at him as the world's superpower at that stage. There was no one who could resist him. Egypt was still around, couldn't resist him. The, the, the Moabites were around and all these other cultures were, were fighting around. He was knocking them over one by one, uh, one after the other. And now he rocks up to Jerusalem. And you might say, well, hang on a sec, but how can God, how can the God of the universe, who is so powerful, allow this pagan nation to overtake Jerusalem? Well, uh, turn me to Jeremiah chapter 25 and we'll find out why. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 4 to 11. You might say, how could God allow an evil empire to take his own special people? Well, I'm going to let God answer for himself here. Jeremiah 25, 4. Jeremiah 25, 4 says, And the Lord hath sent unto you all, these are his people he's speaking about, okay? And the Lord, that's Jehovah, has sent unto you all his servants and prophets, rising early and sending them. But ye have not hearkened, you haven't listened to them, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Turn ye again now every one from his evil way. These are the, the prophets. They, they told people, Turn away from evil and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever. So what was the promise here? If you turn away from your evil, from your sin, if you stop sinning, you can't live in the land peacefully. God wants, God said, he'll essentially protect you. You can live in there forever if you just follow his laws. Look at verse 6. And go not after other gods to serve them, and to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the words works of your hands, and I will not, I will do you no hurt. Yet, this is the sad part of the whole thing. 
yet he hath not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands and to your own hurt. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, that's people making bread every day, and the light of the candle. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This was written before it happened. And God was pronouncing judgment on his people and essentially saying, this is what's going to have to happen. Um, Jeremiah warned his people over and over again. In fact, he was called the weeping prophet for that reason, because he saw what was coming up for them. And he cried for his people. He cried for them. Because it didn't have to get to this. That God essentially says, this is exactly what's going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, not just take you. He's going to take all of his other nations around. And you're going to serve him for 70 years. How's that? Well, exactly how long they were going to serve him for. And it was foretold and to begin under the King, uh, King Jehoiakim's rule. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1. So this is so Jeremiah writes the prophecy about what would happen, okay, because they had disobeyed the Lord. Um, Jehoiakim was an evil king, he wasn't a righteous king, and God was going to judge Israel because of their grievous sins. They had gone, the Bible says, chasing after other gods. They weren't faithful to their own God. They had adopted the gods of the Moabites and other people, and the and, and gods like Baal and, uh, and Asherah and other gods like that, and they chose because they were very enticing to follow them rather than God. So God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to judge you now. And 2 Kings records what happened. 2 Kings chapter 24. And verse 1 says there, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees. Okay, the, the Chaldeans, I'll share a bit of that in a moment. And the bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the children of Ammon and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord, came upon this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did, and also for the innocent blood that he shed. For he, defiled, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, um, which the Lord would not pardon. God had now judged his people for their sin. But God said that he would limit the, the punishment 
for the course of 70 years. He told them when they're going to go in and when they're going to come out of it. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 46 with me. Because even in the midst of their judgment, even in the midst of their punishment from God, God tells them some hopeful words. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 25. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saith, Behold, I will punish the multitude of No, and Pharaoh, and Egypt with their gods, and their kings, even Pharaoh, and all of them that trust in him. And I will deliver them into the hand of those that seek their lives, and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his servants. And afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, saith the Lord. But fear not. Thou, O my servant Jacob, now he's speaking to, to Judah here, okay, to his people Israel, and be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save thee from afar off, and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return and be in rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee. For I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a, a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. So God was saying he was punishing not just not just them, but he's punishing the other nations around them as well, including Egypt and other things. And he's going to use Nebuchadnezzar to do it. But he says to his own people, don't worry, I might put an end to some of these nations. Like, uh, how many Moabites do we have uh, over here at the moment? How many, no, no Moabites people? Gone. Well, I put an end to them. But he says to his own people, who were very small in number, like the Moabites, I'm not going to put an end to you. And so we have Jews still today. It's part of the reason. So many cultures have disappeared off the face of the planet, okay, during these particular upheavals. And if, if there was a nation of people that really should have disappeared off the face of the planet, it should have been the Jews, okay? Not only did they, did they um, uh, suffer during this particular time, but they suffered on multiple occasions where people and nations tried to eradicate them completely off the map, okay? including Europe, including early Christendom, okay, tried to destroy them as well. You know, when the Crusaders went into Jerusalem to take the holy city, they didn't just try to wipe out the Muslims that were there, but the Jews along with them as well. Because the Jews were considered by uh, the early Christendom, and I'll put that in inverted commas because it's a, it's a very, very loose term, and we shouldn't ever equate Christendom with Christianity, okay? Um, they saw the Jews as Christ's killers, and that God's punishment was upon them because of what they've done to Christ, because they betrayed him, and that it was their responsibility to do the meaning, to be the, the sword of God. Really? No. It was just another excuse to fall, to fall and kill and do whatever men love to do. So 
God said he put a limit or an end to, to the punishment they were going to experience, and he was, wasn't going to put an end to them. There was an out to this thing. Um, and this message really is, is for us as well. Um, know something here. Whatever decisions you and I make in our lives, um, whether we sin or whether we don't sin or make good choices, is going to affect people around you. Regardless of what you think you're doing, regardless of whether you think the decisions you're making are not influencing or affecting anyone else, they do. Because not everyone in, in Judah, not everyone who's living in Israel, in Jerusalem, was an evildoer, okay? There were still plenty, and we're going to find out, Daniel and his, and his some of his friends and their families were still honouring God. But yet, when evil people do evil things, it influences the people around them who are trying to do good. So when you and I do the right thing, it's going to influence people around us. But when you and I sin and choose the wrong path, I'll guarantee you it's going to affect not just you, but the lives of the people all around you. Sin always has a, a, a spreading effect on other people, an influence on other people. And we don't see that often ourselves because we think if we sin, it's just hidden, it's just me. But it's not just you. Because when you're affected by it, what you do, what you say, is going to, is going to come out differently. Your life will be different than if you didn't. Okay, do you understand? And this is what happened to Israel. God keeps warning them, don't do it, don't do it. Because of the sin, though, in that, in that country, all of them were taken. They were all affected. From the youngest to the oldest, from the most righteous to the biggest sinner, they were all swept up in this whole thing. So don't ever underestimate the influence of your decisions in your life. Because we can either make good decisions that bless everyone around us, or we can make very poor decisions that will destroy the lives of people around us. That's how important our decisions actually are. Sin always leads to captivity. If there's any picture here that, that you really want to take out of it, sin leads to captivity. If God withdraws his protection... Okay, and says, I'm going to leave you to your own devices. And that's what we read at the beginning of Romans. People will say, no, I'm going to do it my way. And they sin and they sin. And then they say, no, I'm not even going to think about you anymore. I refuse to acknowledge you. God says, I'm going to hand you over to your own nature. And the result of that is always captivity, is always bondage. The world that we live in looks sometimes happy. It's completely bound by sin. Completely. It's captivated by it and to it. It's, and the average person out there is completely unaware of the disease they carry and the end of that disease. Because there's an end. If you get cancer and there's no cure and they, they, they pronounce you're going to be gone, well, there's a good chance you're going to be gone. Okay, It's going to kill you. Well, the average person has a disease in this world. In fact, everyone has a disease in this world, except for the ones that have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They've got a disease called sin, which is always lurking inside. Okay? And it grows and it festers and it keeps people bound. 
and in bondage until Jesus actually saves them and sets them free. And we have a huge part to play here because we can be light in this world. We can bring people to understanding in this world. We can deliver the truth that will set them free. Or we can be so selfish and so self-centered and so worried about our own lives in this world that we're living in now that we refuse to share that light with them and we cover it up. Don't cover up what you know. Don't cover up your the relationship you have with God. Don't pretend when you're out of this particular room and we're all Christians here, right? We're all believers and we and we love each other and we, we, we're strong for the Lord and we believe in the word of God and we want to use it, you know? Live it out there. It's more important out there than it is in here. More important because we influence the lives of people and ultimately every spiritual decision we make has an eternal consequence to it. I don't want to scare you, but every decision you and I make has an eternal consequence to it. So God says in, 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 in Daniel 1.1, 1, 1, he judged them through Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? And it says they were carried away. We could go back to Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 with me. Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. It says there in verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that's Nebuchadnezzar, with part of the vessels of the house of God, mind you. So the temple that they had had golden vessels in there to serve God, took them away, which he carried into the land of Shinar, Shina to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. First of all, I want to I explain to you where Shina, where Shina, how do you pronounce that? Shina. To understand where Shina was, we've got to go back all the way back to Genesis to find out where Shina was. Okay, and I'm going to go back right there now because I want to lay this foundation for you so you understand. So turn back with me to Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. We're going to go back and see the beginnings of this land and what it represents and where it started. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. That's pretty early on, isn't it? I mean, Genesis chapter 10, we're talking pretty early days here. But I think you're going to understand some very important points here. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. It says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. A bit like Nebuchadnezzar. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalman, in the land of China. Out of, the, out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Calah and Rezin between Nineveh and Calah, the same as a great city. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Just as a side note, Asher became the Assyrian people. Okay? And Nineveh 
which is still around today, okay, there's a place called Nineveh, and of which there are some people that I know personally who have come from Nineveh, okay? They are from that, that area there, okay? Um, but the Asher became the Assyrian people. But you look at here, Nimrod was essentially described here as the world's first emperor, okay? Because all the people were together at that stage. They weren't spread all around the world. They were all together, and Nimrod declared himself to be the leader of all of these people. He became the world's first king or emperor, and he started, look at the beginning of his, of his kingdom, was Babel. And that was in the land of Shinar. So turn forward a little bit with me to Genesis 11 now, 11 verse 1. And if you're wondering if it's that Babel, the answer is yes, it's that Babel. Genesis 1, 11, 1 says, And the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to let us make brick and burn them freely. And they made brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. They didn't want to be separated. They want to stay together. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to go to. Let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off to build the city. They didn't finish it. Wherefore in the, the, is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth and from thence the Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now that the word Babylon comes from and has its derivation from Babel. It's in the same area. Shinar is where Babylon was. And this is where the people of God were being dragged to. And what's sad about the whole thing is that even the vessels that they had used in, the, in Solomon's temple to actually worship God with. So the golden vessels and the things that were in, in that temple, part, it says part of them were taken away and brought to the temple of his God. Now the God of the God of Nebuchadnezzar was called Marduk. And he, another, another name he was also known as Baal. Okay, it was either Baal or Marduk. Okay, and we'll look at that uh, next week in a little bit more detail, right? Um, but just what's interesting to note is that many kingdoms, and, and, and Marduk was the highest god in the Babylonian pantheon of gods, right? So they had a whole group or collection of gods related to each other, male, female, whatever they were, okay? Um, and he was the highest of these particular gods in Babylon at that time. In fact, if you look at it, most of the world's empires that are described by Daniel whether they're Assyrian, Babylonian, uh, Persian, Greek, Romans, all had a 
pantheon of gods. What's interesting is that this Canaanite god, who the Jews worshipped, the one, only one, they didn't have like a whole plethora of them, they only had one. Whichever pantheon he came in contact with didn't exist after that. So neither the gods of the Persians, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, no one worships them anymore. Disappeared. Yet, this one god of this little group of people who were at this, what seemed like they were at the mercy of all these huge empires at that stage, or throughout throughout hundreds of years of, uh, of the world's history, um, this god is still floating around. I wonder why. But what's sad about the whole thing is that in he's the, the, the utensils that were used to worship him were now delivered to worship a fake god. To either worship a god that was completely fake or demonic. Okay, in these uh, in these instances. So turn, let's, let's let's continue with that. And and this is what we need to understand as well. If we sin, God God's glory is lost. Does that make sense to everyone? Israel had sinned, chosen not to follow God, but even though God was was punishing His own people, He lost glory because of that. Because the things that were meant to be his own were taken by others to worship false gods. And that's another thing I want us to really take away with us, is that when we sin, it robs God of his glory. Once again, you may not see it, but it's true. Look at Daniel 1, 3 and 4, as we think about these final two verses. Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Now, once again, we'll speak. we've gone back to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spake unto Ashtonaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favoured, and skillful in all wisdom and cunning knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. And whom they might, uh, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. When it mentions the Chaldeans, these are the Babylonians. Okay, so Daniel and his friends and his family were carried off as part of the. There were three deportations. Daniel was carried off to Babylon around six hundred five BC. We know that date, right? And he was only about. They estimate about 15 years old because he was in he was in Babylon for more, more than 70 years after that, right? He was in there the whole he was there the whole time. So he would have been 85, right? When he when he uh, when that captivity sort of finished. But he was deported with his family and his friends, and he was only about 15 years old. And he came from, if you look at that, a well-to-do family. It says he he, he was from the uh, princes. He was either from the king's seed and of the princes. So he, it looks like that Daniel, along with his friends, came from either some sort of no, noble family or noble lineage or related somehow to the king or the princes in, uh, in Judah. So he came from noble stock. 
Now, in all, there were three deportations that Nebuchadnezzar did. The first one, Daniel went with. Daniel was taken the first one. Okay. Um, the second deportation occurred in 597 BC, and the prophet Ezekiel was taken in that one. And the final one, in the final deportation, they destroyed the temple of Solomon. They, they burned the whole thing to the ground. Okay, so it happened over a period of time. There were three deportations, and the final one, they destroyed Jerusalem. So Daniel's writings, if we look at them, cover a period of 70 years. So the book of Daniel covers a 70, at least a 70-year period, um, from 605 to essentially 536 BC. But before we go any further, I want you to consider the world from Daniel's perspective. And just take a moment just to think about this. A kid of 15 years old. So imagine you're 15, maybe you're 15 years old and your city is surrounded by a foreign, uh, a foreign nation. No chance you're going to win this one. Um, you see people dying left, right and centre. And then once your people have your, your city has been invaded by these by this uh, these people um, who speak a different language, have a different culture, worship different gods, and had a pretty pretty bad reputation for being pretty cool as well. Um, they take control of your city and they say you have to come with us. You, your family, come with us. You and your family come with us. Uh, and you've got no idea where they're going to take you. So imagine that just for a moment. Um, it would have been absolutely terrifying to experience something like that when you were that young. And I don't know too many people alive today who experienced war, who experienced even that, to be taken away from your, your home to a foreign land where they speak a totally different uh different uh, language and culture um, and after Daniel was deported he lived his entire life in Babylon his entire life so you know, the first 15 years of his life were living amongst his own people second the second part of his life the whole 17 years plus was living in a foreign place um, and this pictures us as believers um, being taken into captivity would be like, for example, China invading Australia and taking back to China the majority of us. And we had to learn to serve the People's Republic of China, the party. We would be working under, under um, their rulers there. We would have to learn their language, not necessarily to be allowed to speak our own language and learn their customs and live like them. Imagine that, if that occurred to us today, what we would be like and that's what daniel experienced but i want you to i want you to understand that these were people of noble birth and they were educated okay to serve the king in his court he valued their education he valued their upbringing because he saw he was aristocracy himself and so he thought if i grab some some of the young uh, uh, you know noble families they're going to be educated they're going to know how to had a, you know, live amongst us or whatever else it is, and they would become useful to him. This is done for a very strategic purpose because by absorbing the people from the cultures that he had conquered he, and raised them up uh, in his own rule or under his own rule, teaching them his ways, it has a very strategic advantage in future when you're making decisions 
if there are more of these people floating around. Because you've, got, you've made them your advisors now, right? And that's what Daniel became. And he's been became advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar. So if he's making any strategic decisions about Jerusalem or the Jewish people, if something else flares up down the track, he can get advice from them. Making Daniel and his associates part of your people and looking after them and, gain, and, and gains knowledge from them. So what was he planning for them? Well, he was planning, according to this, to teach them their own ways, their culture, their language, their sciences, and, and so they would learn to fit in with them. And next week, we're going to look at something interesting. They changed their names from Jewish names to, to uh, Chaldean names. And this is Chaldean, yes, from the place that Abraham came out of. Abraham came out of a, a, a city called Ur, or, or a place called Ur, of the Chaldees. Okay, so these are the same type of people here. Um, but look at verse 4. Look at, the, look at what were the prerequisites for these people to be brought into this training program, which is like a university course for them. It was a three-year period, okay, where they would be taught, they got like a scholarship, and they would learn all the ways of the Chaldean people, right? Look at what they had to have. It says they had to, they had to be children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and as such had an ability um, in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. So let me close up with these thoughts. We live in a fallen world. Okay? And so it's almost parallels the life that Daniel and his associates and family lived in, in Babylon. Alien. Different, thinking different, different culture, different gods. Okay? So we live in a fallen world, a foreign land controlled by people who do not follow and worship the God that we worship. Our Western world is Babylon. Essentially, it's what it is. Okay, in a number of different ways. I'll talk about this maybe a little bit more next week. But things such as relative morality is not the God that we serve, the ignorance of God's word, the desire to live for oneself, the refusal to recognize the existence of God as creator and ruler. But I want you to look at the parallels between how it describes these young men, right, and us. Look at the parallels, the ones that were chosen to serve the king in Babylon, okay? And I want you to think of how they refer to us. They would have no blemish, no blemish, which means they had to be clean. They had to look whole and pure, right? Um, well, the Bible tells us that we as believers have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and we have no blemish. There is no sin that is contained within us any further. The Bible says that these people were meant to be well-favored. Well, I've got news for you. If you're a believer, you are well favored by God. You are highly favored by God. They were to be skillful in wisdom. Oh, what's unbelievable is the book that's in your hands is the greatest source of wisdom the world has ever known. And God has given us his wisdom through his spirit. He said they had to be cunning in knowledge. We have a knowledge far superior from anything this world might hope to gain by their own devices and by their own efforts. 
So we have been given special revelation by God. Things that can't be worked out and can't be seen, God has provided for us in his And then it says they had to be able to stand in the king's palace. Well, you now Jesus told his disciples, you're going to be standing before kings one day. They will drag you into the courts. They, they, will, they will force you to, to testify before them. And he says to them, don't even bother to work out what you're going to say before kings. The spirit going to give us the right words to speak. If you're a believer here this morning, I tell you, and I'll testify to you that you have all the grace and the knowledge you need to be able to testify and to declare the amazing truth of God before anyone. From kings to princes to governors to rulers to prime ministers, whatever it is, if you have the ability as an ambassador of God to this world to declare and testify the truth, you can stand before any king in this world. Daniel and his friends living in Babylon is a picture of us living in a fallen world. Where Satan is described as the God. And when it comes to the God of this world, either you have submitted yourself to the God of the universe, to the, the true creator, or by default, you're already submitted to the other guy. So the first thing that you need to understand is if you aren't a believer this morning, if you aren't born again, if you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus as your Lord and King and as, a, as a, the Saviour of your life, then you are, by default, under this foreign king, under this king of this world, okay? It's only when you put your faith in Christ will you actually move that allegiance from one to another. That's the only time it's ever going to happen. You might try your bestest with whatever, whatever effort you may put into it to try to be a good person and try to earn merit points with the God of the universe. But the Bible says you can't do that because by, by default, you are already under the God of this world. And the only way to be released from that is for him to rescue and, and free you. Christians have always been the minority in this world. Don't ever think to yourself that Christians have been in the majority or that somehow we live in a Christian nation. We do not live in a Christian nation. Neither do the Americans live in a Christian nation. Neither is there any nation in this world that is Christian. None. The only Christian nation is a kingdom. It's a kingdom with a king. Not a democracy or not any other form of government. Okay? We serve a risen king. There is no nation in this world that is ruled by Christians and has a purely Christian uh, thing. There is none. We live, regardless of where you live in the world, we live in a fallen world, ruled by fallen people. And some of them may have the best intentions. <clears throat> but either way, the Bible says that we are always in the minority, always. Jesus says the path that leads to life is narrow and there are few that find it. The road that leads to destruction, the gate is wide and the road is wide. And that's because there are plenty who don't want to take the narrow road. You are in a minority, but you are also of noble birth. 
Because when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you were, you were adopted and born again into God's family. These young men that we will be looking at the lives in the coming weeks were only about 15 years of age, maybe even younger. Okay? And sometimes we look at ourselves and when you're born again, you start as a baby, as a baby. Okay, we may be young in the faith, but it doesn't mean you can't have strong faith. And it doesn't mean even at 15 years of age, they exhibited amazingly practical and powerful faith in their lives. So you too can be a great example to people around you of the grace of God toward you and who you serve. And so we'll discover in the coming weeks, faith exhibited in, in, in real ways in a fallen world. That's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 11, Dear beloved, I beseech you, strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversations or your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The flesh besieges the soul. Sin wants to conquer you. Remember, God said to, uh, to Cain, Cain was resistant to God, and God said, behold, sin lies at the door. It's waiting right there for you to come in. But you're supposed to conquer it. You're supposed to re uh, resist it. And that's the same for us. Sin wants to besiege, and it wants to conquer. But I'll tell you something. If God is in the city, it can't be conquered. If God lives in your heart, you cannot be conquered. Okay? God had abandoned Israel at that stage because they had forsaken him. But if you're a believer here this morning, God, the Bible says, dwells inside you. And so this city cannot fall because you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We must remember that we live in a fallen world. We are examples to this world. We must, we must remember that everything we do influence people around us. And if you are ever thinking that you're not strong enough, look to the one who won. Always keep your eyes on him. Because if you keep your eyes on him and not on yourself and not on other people, you have every opportunity to, to walk that victorious life. Jesus told us, and I'll close this one verse. Ye are of God, oh, sorry, this is the Apostle John. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So always remember that. God bless you guys. I hope you uh, enjoy the rest of the series. I know that was a, a long sermon. I had to lay that foundation down for you, but looking forward to sharing the rest of this video. Thank you.